This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please go to christendomrestored.com to read other articles. The Truly Covenantal and Reformed View of Prophecy and of the Other Gifts, Part 1. Ojadar Marinov, January 3rd, 2014. I've been asked many times to write this thesis, and I've always replied that it's very difficult for me to do it. Not because my position is not supported by the Bible. To the contrary, the Bible is full with support of what is called by some continuationism. That is, the view of the continuing validity of the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 in our present times. Not because my position is not supported by historical theology. To the contrary, cessationism as a systematic doctrine didn't appear until long after the Enlightenment hit the church in the second half of the 19th century. Before that, there were only isolated statements gleaned out of the text from isolated names here and there. While the practice and the teaching and the beliefs of the church were in favor of God continuing to lead and guide his people throughout history by all means he has given in the Bible, including miraculous and revelatory gifts. Contrary to the cessationist claims, the question is not where were the charismatics for the last 19 centuries, but where were the cessationists before the second half of the 19th century? Not because my professed theological tradition, the theology of Reformation, does not support the view of continuing validity and operation of the gifts today. To the contrary, Calvin very clearly rejects the nonsense and ignorance of cessationism in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 13 and a careful reading of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 shows that he expected specifically the gift of prophecy to be operational in the church today. The practice of the Reformers and their heirs is also on my side, given the multitude of prophecies and miracles performed by Reformed ministers from John Knox to Charles Spurgeon, and reported by many Reformed missionaries. The reason for this task to be so difficult I express in a letter to a friend of mine as follows. I will never be able to understand, Don, how grown-up men can read what the plain text of Scripture and the Reformers say on this issue, beat themselves in the chest that they are Reformed and sola scriptura, and then turn around and argue vehemently for the exact opposite to what the Scripture and the Reformers say. This complete inability in so many churchy and celebrities, like Wilson and MacArthur, to think clearly on such a simple biblical issue is beyond my powers to explain or even comprehend. I can't comprehend an otherwise very meticulous theologian like Warfield can admit that there isn't a single word in scripture in support of his theory of the purpose of the gifts, and then in the next sentence claim that he is biblical in his theory. I can't comprehend how an otherwise very meticulous theologian like Warfield can admit that there isn't a single word in scripture in support of his theory of the purpose of the gifts, and then in the next sentence claim that he is biblical in his theory. I can't comprehend how one can be so completely illogical as to claim to reject an experientialism as a valid argument and then use only experiential arguments to prove his point. I can't comprehend how one can reject the possibility for any true prophets today, the very essence of cessationism, and then turn around and use an argument that presupposes the existence of true prophets today, Deuteronomy 18. I can't comprehend how one can criticize dispensationalism for dividing history into separate unrelated economies and then turn around and use, in other areas, one of dispensationalism's most established arguments. It seems to me that cessationism must be based on a complete blackout of the brain. It is the most irrational and illogical doctrine in our Reformed churches today, and I can't comprehend why people can't see it. I mean, if it was some complex theological truth like the Trinity, I can understand. But how is this possible when very simple, clear, direct biblical texts are involved and very simple, clear, direct teachings and practice of the reformers are involved? This is what makes it difficult for me to write an article on it. I just can't comprehend why something so 
blatantly, obviously biblical, like the spiritual gifts, needs to be defended against something so blatantly irrational and illogical and unbiblical like cessationism. I can't shake off the thought that it needs not arguments, but diagnosis. But write this thesis I must, I know. Apparently even the worst possible intellectual schizophrenia, when unopposed, can parade as sanity. Even the worst possible rationalism and enlightenment ideology, when unopposed, can parade as biblical theology. And therefore, opposition must be raised, sanity restored, and biblical arguments pressed so that the enemies of the clear, pure truth of Scripture have no ground to spread their theories. Nevertheless, this is not simply a treatise against cessationism. Cessationism is dying as a theory anyway, together with the two ideologies that gave it birth, the Enlightenment and Dispensationalism. The gradual decline of Presbyterianism, expressed both in the loss of covenant theology and the loss of cultural and missionary impetus, is obvious to all. The rise of the charismatic churches and groups and the conversion of so many formerly cessationist believers and whole churches to a biblical view of the gifts is obvious. Even if we leave cessationism alone, it will die on its own accord without outside help. Or rather, it has been dead from the very beginning, not having any knowledge of the power of God. Mark 12 verse 24. An attack against cessationism would be good, for it is a false ideology. But way more important is a positive restoration of the truly biblical, covenantal, reform view of the gifts of the Spirit, one that is neither mystical nor rationalistic, but covenantal, related to the restoration of all things in the gospel and to the work of God in the church and in the world. In the dying Presbyterian circles, both rationalism and mysticism, especially liturgical mysticism, are opposed to the work of the Spirit today. The view of the work that is humanistic, focused on man and his ability to please God, liturgy, or to know God's will through his own mental efforts, rationalism. And this article is not a defense of the practices in many modern charismatic churches. Yes, of course, much of what is happening there is fake, a blind imitation of what the charismatic celebrities are doing. Having said that, we need to acknowledge one fact. The Reformed theologians and pastors are just as guilty as their charismatic counterparts, and they are fools to hurl accusations when the only thing that they can offer is a rejection of the gifts of the Spirit, which is just as unbiblical and just as offensive to God as are the false prophets in many charismatic churches today. This is a classic example of beating something with nothing, and the nothing of modern Presbyterianism has been expectedly retreating before the something, even if false and unbiblical, of the charismatic movement. A covenantal view of the gifts is necessary exactly because there have been many abuses of the concept of spiritual gifts in so many churches in the world today. Contrary to the cessationist argument, such abuses do not constitute a proof that the gifts have ceased. Not more than the abuses of pulpit and church discipline in the Presbyterian churches constitute a proof that preaching and church discipline have ceased. The argument from abuses shows the weakness of cessationism to produce anything more than a cessationalist argument, while at the same time criticizing cessationalism. But such abuses do tell us that a systematic biblical doctrine of the gifts is necessary. I am also familiar with the several treatments by theologians and pastors like Wayne Grudem, Reformed Baptist, or Ulf Ekman, a radical charismatic turned more traditional Protestant and even a little Roman Catholic. While many of them contain good biblical evidence for the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in guiding the church and the individual believers, as well as in establishing the saints in the faith through signs, wonders, and miraculous and revelatory gifts, I am afraid a systematic, comprehensive, covenantal treatment of the purpose of the spiritual gifts is still lacking. The cessationist argument for the purpose of the gifts, 
only as sign gifts to prove that the apostles' message was from God, not necessary today because we have the canon, is not supported by the Bible, not even a little bit. All the attempts to defend such ridiculous ideas from the Bible are in vain. Given the fact that the theologian who first made it popular, B.B. Warfield, himself admitted the following. But whence can we learn this to have been the end of the miracles of the apostolic age were intended to serve? Certainly not from the New Testament. In it not one word is ever dropped to this effect. Certain of the gifts, as for example the gift of tongues, are no doubt spoken as a sign to those who are without. It is required of all of them that they be exercised for the edification of the church, and a distinction is drawn between them in value, in proportion as they were for edification. So much for Warfield's sola scriptura. Of course, eager to defend his own theory, Warfield forgets what he had just written, and continues to babble that the immediate end for which they were given, as Warfield sees it, is not left doubtful, an example that even the brightest reformed minds have their moments of lunacy. But still, his admission that the New Testament doesn't support his theory of the purpose of the gifts is important. To it, we must add the fact that the New Testament declares not just the gifts, but all the miracles as signs. Ergo, Second Corinthians 12, verse 12. Thus, if the cessationist argument is extended, God must have ceased from working miracles today, not just through personal gifts, but altogether. No cessationists argue for such a thing, thus exposing cessationism as an inconsistent theory at best. Inconsistent it is, of course, for the Bible doesn't say that the only purpose of the gifts is to testify of the Apostles' ministry, and that's all. To the contrary, the New Testament has a comprehensive, covenantal purpose for the spiritual gifts, and not a single iota of the covenantal purpose has passed away or ceased in the church today. And this article is an attempt to offer a short but systematic treatment of that covenantal purpose, both to shut the mouths of the rationalist mysticist alliance and the Reformed circles against the work of the Spirit, and to correct the abuses of those who imagine work of the Spirit where there isn't. This comprehensive covenantal purpose of the gifts has the following elements. 1. Knowledge and worship. 2. Authority and legitimacy of authority. 3. Ethics, sanctification, and establishment in the faith. 4. Pronouncing judgment. and 5. Vision, purpose, and strategy for the future. Unlike the biblical fantasies of Warfield and of all other cessationists, all these purposes of the gifts and especially of the gift of prophecy are revealed in the Bible. We do not need to make conjectures about them as Warfield does about his theory. The New Testament is very clear about those purposes and it presents examples of their applications in practice. In addition to it, we have very clear examples in the history of the Reformed Churches of Men of God applying these gifts in practice to those same purposes we listed above. We will now take a look at each one of these points separately. Our focus, of course, will be on the revelatory gifts, prophecy, tongues, interpretation, knowledge, as they are the quote-unquote greater gifts. But the biblical argumentation offered here applies in different degrees to all spiritual gifts. 1. The gifts as an instrument for knowledge and worship. Before we look at the first and most important purpose of the spiritual gifts, we need to deal with the most illogical, schizophrenic, and biblically illiterate arguments against the prophetic gift in the New Testament raised by cessationists. The knee-jerk reaction of, I will accept the validity of the gifts when Deuteronomy 18 verses 20 through 22 begins to be applied. 
It is even raised, ironically, by those churchy and celebrities like John MacArthur, who in everything else are strictly anti-theonomic and attack and criticize the idea of continuing validity of the law of God today. No civil application of the law of God except when MacArthur needs it for his specific agenda, you see. But those cessationists who profess to be theonomists and still use the argument are no more consistent and logical than MacArthur. They are still picking and choosing bits and pieces of the law to apply, avoiding mentioning other provisions in the law, and avoiding mentioning the practical applications of the law in the rest of the Old Testament, and also avoiding the specific case of judging prophecies in the New Testament. The first thing that is obvious is that in a cessationist framework, Deuteronomy 18 verse 20 through 22 can't be applied at all. It is part of larger context verses 15 through 22. And that larger context presupposes that there are two kinds of prophets, true and false prophets. Verses 20 through 22 tell us how we tell a false prophet from a true prophet. But cessationists don't believe in true prophets to start with. If the gift of prophecy has ceased, then a cessationist doesn't have to wait until the prophesied event comes to pass or not. If he is consistent with this theory, he must declare every prophet a false prophet. A cessationist who waits for a prophecy to come true or not to apply to Deuteronomy 18, verse 20 through 22, has already violated the tenets of cessationism, for he has assumed the possibility that the prophecy may be true, and therefore the prophet may be a true prophet. If he has assumed such a thing, he has assumed that cessationism is a false doctrine, and that there is a possibility for the gift of prophecy to be valid today. Such is the schizophrenia of cessationism, that its most cherished argument is the one that destroys the theory from the very beginning. Even if we ignore that obvious logical problem, we still have to deal with the New Testament commandment concerning judging prophets. Paul specifically says in the chapter that deals with prophecy in the greatest detail, and therefore the chapter avoided by cessationist theologians like the plague, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that when prophets speak, the others must judge, verse 29. All this is happening in the church service. There is no mention of the church waiting for a future event to happen in order to judge. The others are judging right there, on the spot. Obviously, there is something very wrong with the cessationist view of prophecy and with his use of Deuteronomy 18 as an argument. Not to mention that applied directly, the argument is not valid even in the Old Testament. For example, applied to Jonah, it would condemn Jonah to death. Jonah delivered a prophecy that had no conditions attached to it, and the prophecy didn't come true. Cessationists try to avoid this problem by claiming that the prophecy actually came true in a different way, but the text is very clear. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Jonah 3 verse 10 The problem for cessationists, of course, is that if Jonah got a free pass, they should give such free pass to every charismatic prophet and cease babbling about Deuteronomy 18. Obviously, there is a problem with their interpretation of Deuteronomy 18. In addition, another passage in the law, Deuteronomy 13, verse 1-5, through 5, actually condemns to death a prophet whose prediction did come to pass. This places an additional burden on the cessationist argument. What if the prophecy did come to pass, but the prophet is still a false prophet? And how can we tell? Jonah is free of guilt, but a prophet who predicts correctly may be guilty. How is this possible? Cessationism has no answer. It has no answer because from the very beginning, the cessationist argument is anti-covenantal. It looks at the prophetic gift as if the only purpose of prophecy is to be clairvoyance, a crystal ball to peek in the future 
Hence, the undue focus on Deuteronomy 18. Such a view of prophecy is based on a basically pagan, metaphysical view of reality. A covenantal view of reality will look at every gift from God in a covenantal, that is, judicial way. It will therefore look at the gift of prophecy first and foremost as a tool for establishing the covenantal relationship of men to God, of drawing them near to God and making them conform to the image of His Son. Thus, New Testament prophecy has nothing to do with the cessationist, essentially pagan expectations of clairvoyance. It has to, first and foremost, with the knowledge of God and His will. And the specific purpose of prophecy is beautifully expressed by no other but John Calvin in his commentary on that very chapter which cessationists are avoiding like the plague. 1 Corinthians 14 Revelation and prophesying I put in one class, and I am of opinion that the latter is the administration of the former. I am of the same opinion as to knowledge and doctrine. What, therefore, anyone has obtained by revelation, he dispenses by prophesying. Doctrine is the way of communicating knowledge. Thus, a prophet will be one who interprets and administers revelation. This is rather in favor of the definition that I have given above than at variance with it. For we have said that prophesying does not consist of a simple and bare interpretation of Scripture, but includes also knowledge for applying it to present use, which is obtained only by revelation and the special inspiration of God. This, of course, needs to be put in the context of Calvin's view of cessationism from his commentary on the only chapter in the Bible that talks about the cessation of the gifts and therefore gives the very name of that theory, 1 Corinthians 13. But when will that perfection come? It begins, indeed, at death. For then we put off, along with the body, many infirmities. But it will not be completely manifested until the day of judgment, as we shall hear presently. Hence we infer that the whole of this discussion is ignorantly applied to the time that is intermediate. Emphasis, mine, BM. Here are the conclusions from Calvin's view. 1. Cessationism is, quote-unquote, ignorant. The, quote-unquote, perfect will come at death and will be completely manifested only in the day of judgment. 2. Prophecy doesn't compete with scripture, as cessationists claim. It applies scripture to present news. 3. Prophecy itself is not simply bare interpretation, as some cessationists claim, calling simple preaching prophecy. It is a supernatural gift. 4. Prophecy is revelation itself, and the fact that it is revelation doesn't mean that it competes with the revelation of Scripture, as cessationists claim. Obviously, there are two kinds of revelation, scriptural and prophetic, and even Paul mentions the possibility of additional, non-scriptural revelation, which confirms and applies scriptural revelation. When he tells the Philippians that God will reveal Apocalypton to them if they have a different attitude. Paul didn't think the Philippians would write scripture, did he? But the most important part of Calvin's exposition is the point that prophecy applies to scripture to present use. Scripture, canonic revelation, needs to be applied in practice. The knowledge for that application according to cessationism must come from the human mind, which is a humanistic proposition. According to Calvin, it is revelation from God, which is a covenantal view. God gives both his canonical revelation as a general rule for life and salvation, and his specific guidance of how to apply this rule to our specific circumstances. How does John MacArthur know he is supposed to be a pastor and not a janitor? His own theory tells him that he figured it out by his own mind because there is no way that the Holy Spirit can reveal it to him directly. Any revelation today would undermine the authority of Scripture, remember? In this particular point, therefore, MacArthur is not covenantal. He is a secular humanist, for he can't have taken the knowledge of what his own specific vocation is from the Bible. 
But according to Calvin, God is who gives all knowledge through revelation, both scriptural and direct, and thus guides his people. In other words, prophecy relates to scripture in the same way engineering relates to science. It applies it to practical, everyday, present use. Given this covenantal view of the purpose of prophecy, then, the cessationist argument that if there is prophecy today, it would undermine the authority of scripture is ridiculous at best. It is just as logical and meaningful as to say that engineering undermines the authority of science. This view answers the questions cessationists can't. Why was Jonah not guilty according to Deuteronomy 18 verse 20 through 22? Why could a prophet be condemned to death if the prophesied event happened? Why the New Testament judgment of prophets and prophecies is happening in the church at the very moment the prophet is prophesying and not after some future time waiting for the prophesied event to happen or not? The answer is obvious. The nature of prophecy is not clairvoyance, but applying scripture to present news. The judgment of a prophet is not based on the physical happening of a future event, but on whether the prophecy is a faithful application of scripture to life. This is what defines whether the prophet speaks in the name of God, or whether he speaks in his own name, or in the name of other gods. The covenantal issue here is, in whose name is the prophet speaking? Deuteronomy 13, verse 2, chapter 5, Chapter 18, verse 18 and 20, not whether he has a better crystal ball than other prophets. But Paul reveals to us still another use of the gifts related to knowledge and revelation. Worship. Of course, it is indicative of the unbiblical nature of cessationism that while cessationists babble about regulative principle of worship and about sola scriptura, they self-consciously avoid the only chapter in the Bible that actually reveals in detail what the worship services of the early church looked like, that same chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. The argument is that the New Testament instructions about worship service apply only to a very limited period of time, A.D. 1st century. The worship services change after that, and the new principles for worship service are not given directly in the Bible, for the Bible doesn't speak directly to the period after the last apostle passed away. There goes Sola Scriptura again, and there goes the regulative principle of worship based on the Bible. One reason they avoid it is that 1 Corinthians 14 shows clearly that the gifts, and specifically the gift of tongues, have a very specific function in the worship of God. In order to understand it, we need to go back to the first manifestation of the gift of tongues, Acts 2. The tongues, as well as the miraculous gifts of healing, of course, were prophesied in that other, less well-known version of the Great Commission given by Jesus in Mark 16, 15-18. And they were not limited to the apostles, but were promised to those who have believed. But Mark 16, verse 15-18 through 18, only says that the signs will accompany the believers, without giving the specific purpose for the signs. We still need to look in other places for the specific purpose of the sign mentioned in Mark 16, and specifically for the sign of tongues. The very first manifestation of these promised signs, Acts 2, is severely misinterpreted by cessationists. The cessationist argument is that the purpose of the tongues in that specific circumstance was to testify for the truthfulness of the word of the apostles. While it is true that the tongues did serve to this end, it is also true that many did not believe even while listening to the tongues. We can say that such purpose was, at best, secondary. There was a higher purpose present. That purpose is pointed to by Jesus in his promise ten days before Pentecost. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Acts 1, verse 8. Now, what does that mean? Or rather, what did that mean to a Jew? 
The meaning of power, as a Jew would understand it, was not physical strength, neither was it magical powers for performing miracles. Power had a covenantal meaning, and that covenantal meaning was the ability to praise and worship God. The whole Old Testament is filled with instructions to worship God as the means to being powerful over Israel's enemies. Samson is one good picture of that covenantal truth. Jehoshaphat's battle against Moab and Ammon in 2 Chronicles 20 is another example. The best expression of this truth in the New Testament is Jesus' decision to quote Psalms 8 verse 2, not from the Aramaean text, and he spoke Aramaean, but from the Greek Septuagint, replacing strength against your enemies with praise. Matthew 21 verse 16. Power meant praise and glory to God, not magic nor intellectual abilities. The examples can be multiplied, but what is important here is the very message the apostles were speaking in tongues on that day of Pentecost. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Acts 2 verse 11. Pentecost was not meant to be a magic seance where the apostles were supposed to impress their listeners with magically acquired supernatural powers and thus convince them to believe. It was meant to be a praise and worship service open to all nations in all languages. The tongues were given not to impress but to praise. They added a special new power to the worship service, power that had been denied before the people of God. While this may be accepted by some cessationists, contra the mainstream cessationist argument that the only purpose of the gifts was to prove the apostles right and that's it, they then claim that this one single instance shows that if there are tongues, they must be understandable to some among the listeners in order to be valid. Like all other cessationist arguments, this one relies on logical induction, making general conclusions from one particular instance, and rejects the total message of the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul specifically says that the tongues don't have to be human. They can be angelic, and that is, not intelligible to his earthly listeners. He repeats the same in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2. The continuing discussion of 1 Corinthians 14 clearly shows that tongues have an additional function that is not public but is limited to the person who is speaking in a tongue. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Neither is the use of tongues limited to the cases where there is interpretation. Paul says, Let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. The statement clearly shows that interpretation is a desirable but not necessary condition for exercising the gift of tongues. Nothing in the text presupposes any limitation on speaking in tongues, except as far as the general order of the meeting is concerned. To the contrary, Paul ends the discussion in verse 39 with, Do not forbid to speak in tongues, a commandment modern cessationists clearly violate, and therefore are hypocritical in their claims to sola scriptura. But what is then the purpose of tongues when exercised without interpretation? Paul tells us, Worship. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also verses 15 through 16. He doesn't say we should stop praying in the Spirit, which in the context means praying in tongues. See verse 14. He doesn't say we should stop singing in the Spirit. Paul says that there has to be a healthy balance between praying in tongues and praying with the mind, and singing in the tongues and singing in the mind. Modern cessationists have it all wrong when they claim that a modern charismatic service is necessarily wrong because people are praying in tongues or singing in tongues. To the contrary, the only chapter in the New Testament which gives the details of a church gathering of the early church gives us clear instructions concerning the balanced use of tongues and mind in worship. Contrary to liturgists, New Testament worship doesn't consist in collectivist activities organized by oligarchy of priests. 
Contrary to rationalists, it doesn't consist in formal repetition of hymns and creeds and dry sermons. New Testament worship is a healthy balance of individual and congregational and a healthy balance of man's participation and the Spirit's guidance for the individual and for the congregation alike. Praying and singing in tongues plays a major role in that worship. Tongues are for praising God first and foremost, and only secondarily for signs or for prophesying with interpretation. Anyone who excludes tongues from worship excludes the Holy Spirit from worship. Paul is very clear, do not forbid speaking in tongues. The only question that needs to be answered then is, why use tongues? Why not always only pray with the mind? Isn't it more productive for everyone always to only pray with the mind? Paul, of course, gives a part of the answer in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But there is more. Letting the Holy Spirit pray through you is a training in humility, an admission that no matter how proficient we are in prayer, we are always inadequate to the task of praying aright. Romans 8 verse 26 tells us that we don't know how to pray as we should, and the Spirit intercedes for us with unutterable groanings. Commenting on Romans 8 verse 26, Calvin says that this verse indicates that the Spirit may choose for us a manner of praying that is beyond out of intellectual capabilities, something that is anathema to cessationists. Hence, the manner of praying aright must be suggested by the Spirit, and he calls those groanings unutterable, into which we break forth by the impulse of the Spirit for this reason, because they far exceed the capability of our own minds. Where in the New Testament do we see a second witness to this verse, and a detailed explanation how these unutterable groanings may look like? Well, 1 Corinthians 14, for one. Modern cessationism, therefore, being a dualistic mixture of Enlightenment rationalism and mysticism, has developed services that either deeply mysticist, based on the pageants designed by men, liturgy, or deeply rationalist, based on what Calvin calls bare interpretation of scripture, devoid of prophetic word applying scripture to present use. Both types of church services are just as far from the true service described in 1 Corinthians 14, as is the charismatic craze that cessationists just love to criticize. So far, such criticism is nothing more than the pot calling the kettle black. Part 2 2. Authority and Legitimacy of Authority In order to understand this function of the gifts, let's take an imaginary example. An ordinary member of an officially cessationist Presbyterian church stands up during church service and prophesies to the church. The content of his prophecy doesn't matter for the moment. Whether it's an admonishment or an encouragement or some condemnation against practices of individual elders or of the whole session, we will exclude the case of prediction of future events here because, as we saw before, contrary to the fantasies of cessationists, New Testament prophecy has very little to do with clairvoyance. What matters is that the man stands up during church service and starts with, Thus says the Lord and continues with the prophecy that is strictly biblical according to the standards of 1 Corinthians chapters 12-14 and applies scripture to specific circumstances as Calvin points out. What would the session do if they are consistent and faithful to their theory of cessationism? There is no prediction of a future event, so Deuteronomy 18 verses 20-22 can't be applied. On the other hand, as I pointed out before, even if there was a prediction of a future event, Consistent cessationists should have to wait to see if the event happens or not. The very meaning of cessationism is that no one can say, Thus says the Lord, after the death of the last apostle. So no matter what the prophet says in the church, 
whether it's true or not, whether it's biblical or not, he is a false prophet, or else cessationism is proven to be a false doctrine. And therefore, a church that claims to be a cessationist and is consistent would excommunicate anyone who starts a public speech in the church with, thus says the Lord. After all, according to the theory, and contrary to Calvin and Reformed theology and practice, every thus says the Lord is a challenge against the authority of Scripture, and no such challenge can be tolerated in any true church. So the session should move and excommunicate the prophet. But let's stop for a moment and think, what exactly is happening in the process of excommunication? The man may be a false prophet, or he may be a true prophet. He may speak in his own words, but he may speak with the words of God. Either way, none of what he says has any judicial consequences for anyone in the church. New Testament prophecy, according to 1 Corinthians 14 verse 29, can and must be judged by the rest of the church. What if the theory is wrong? What if God actually can and does speak today through prophets in the way Calvin explains it? There is still a very real probability that the words uttered by that man are the words of God in that special revelation of applying scripture to present use. What if the excommunication is actually a rebellion against a man who does speak with the authority from God, even if that authority is not mediated through an institutional church? Don't we know quite a few examples in history when the institutional church was wrong and individuals who rebelled against it were right? Well, the reply to these questions should be that the church elders are acting with the authority from God. Or, are they? Are they really speaking in the name of God? 1 Peter 4 verse 11 commands everyone who speaks to do so as one who is speaking the words of God. But are the elders of an officially cessationist church speaking as if they are speaking the words of God? Can they say... Thus says the Lord, and base their excommunication on that? They can't. Their own theory forbids that they make such a claim. While there is some probability that the prophet's claim is true, and he is speaking the words of God, we know for sure from the testimony of the elders' own theory that their actions and words are, at best, a hopeful guess of what God says or wants in the particular circumstances. Since direct revelation and applying scripture to life, as per Calvin, is forbidden, the session openly claims, through their theology, that everything they do as elders, including the excommunication of a prophet, is their human decisions, with little to no proof that they have the authority or the approval of God to act in his name. God's word doesn't speak directly and specifically to the particular circumstances of the day, and God is banned from speaking directly to people today. Therefore, it is a man's word and man's agenda that control the church. And therefore, it is man's words and man's agenda that control the judicial decisions of the church. Man, or a group of men, who openly say that they have no direct connection nor knowledge of God's will for the particular circumstances, make decisions as to who gets to participate in a family, which by definition is not theirs, but God's. And if God wants to bring a positive correction to their decision, he can't do it directly, for by their own theory, he can't speak directly. They won't listen to another prophet who says, Thus says the Lord. They will only listen, if at all, to another man who also claims to be guessing the will of God at best. The only option that God has to correct the decision of that church, then, is to bring destruction to it. Indeed, even if these elders claim to not hear directly from God, nor speak God's words, because prophecy has ceased, they still act as if they hear directly from God and speak God's words, and excommunicating a person from God's church. Rejecting direct authority from God in theory, they still assume it in practice. 
What is left for us to wonder about is, if these people are so serious about judgment against a false prophet, are they equally serious about judgment against false pastors? If a prophecy is biblically correct but condemned because of a theory, how much greater condemnation will there be against a pastor who openly says they were acting on their accord because there is no way they could hear directly from God? The only objection to the above argument can be this. The elders act with a delegated authority from God as elders of the church, and therefore whatever they do must be the will of God. There are many problems with this objection, especially the assumption that once a group of persons is declared to be a session, they are in no need of direct instruction from God for applying his word to present use. But the biggest problem is this. How do they know they are legitimate elders with legitimate authority to make decisions for God and his church? What is the mechanism that establishes the legitimate authority? Since they are cessationists, one factor is excluded from the answer, God's direct revelation. Since the Bible doesn't mention their names specifically, another factor is excluded, scriptural revelation. Yes, their assumption of elders' authority may not formally violate the biblical requirements, but how do we know that these specific people and not someone else are supposed to be elders? How do we know that these specific people and not the prophet they are excommunicating are empowered to speak for God? We can't know it. All we know is that a group of people assembled together decided they are going to start a church and be its elders by human decision. Maybe they felt they were called by God to be elders, a human feeling. Maybe they saw the need for having a church with elders in their community, human reasoning. Maybe they were recognized by another group of elders who are also cessationists and therefore do not speak for God and do not have any direct word from God. Again, a human decision. No matter what process of establishing themselves as church elders these men have chosen, if they are consistent cessationists, they can only claim human authority, and nothing more than that. So at the very best in their encounter with the man who claims to be a prophet, we have man's word versus man's word, or man's agenda versus man's agenda. The only difference is that, by the nature of his testimony, the prophet may be really a prophet and may speak for God. No cessationist elder or session can truly say they derive their personal authority from God. If they say such a thing, they are declaring their cessationism a dead doctrine. Thus, on the basis of cessationism, there can be no true church, no true authority, no true church discipline, and therefore no testimony to the world. It isn't surprising that the emergence of cessationism as a systematic doctrine coincided with the decline of the influence of Reformed churches in the world today. If all we can offer is one man-made authority versus another man-made authority, we are no better than the unregenerate out there. This leads us to another covenantal purpose for the gifts, and specifically for the prophetic gift, legitimization of authority. Truly, in a sense, the gifts are signs, as cessationists claim. But it is a false claim that prophecy in the New Testament was a sign for the authority of the word the apostles were speaking. The apostles were not expecting signs and wonders to prove them right. It was their authority in the church, not the truthfulness of their doctrine, that needed legitimization. Such legitimization of authority was needed not only for the apostles, it was needed for others as well. So the principle remains. The best example of such legitimization of authority are Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. The Greek text has two possible meanings here. 
1. The prophecies went forth before Timothy, which means his ministry was predicted by them. Or 2. The prophecies were made before Timothy so that he instructed them in his ministry. Either way, given that Paul himself is an apostle and the officer of an apostle is higher than that of a prophet, it sounds quite strange that Paul would rely on the authority of prophecies to give a command and admonishment to Timothy. There was no doubt in Timothy's mind that Paul was an apostle. There was no doubt that Paul was writing from God. And there was no doubt concerning the position of authority Paul had in the church. So why is Paul referring to prophecies if all he needs to do is refer to his own already established authority of an apostle and give admonishment to Timothy? The answer is found in another place of Paul's writings. Galatians 1 verse 13 through chapter 2 verse 10. A careful reading of the passage shows that Paul contrasts revelation and authority that he received directly from God as superior to knowledge and acknowledgement he received from even the most distinguished among the apostles. When he defends his authority of apostle before the Galatians, he cares nothing for human endorsement. In fact, he specifically says that when God revealed the Son directly to Paul, Paul did not consult flesh and blood. And in case it is still unclear what this means, he added, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Galatians 1 verse 16 through 17. It was apparently very important to Paul to emphasize the truth that authority directly confirmed by God in prophetic words supersedes authority confirmed or delegated by men, even if those men are the best of the apostles. Neither was there any scriptural necessity for Paul to seek their endorsement. He says in the next chapter that he went to Jerusalem by revelation, and the Greek text specifically emphasizes this fact. Paul had worked before as an apostle without having to ask for ordination and endorsement from men. He was appointed by God. It wasn't until he had a revelation from God to go and present his case that he did go. The principle, therefore, is this. Prophecy legitimizes authority better than ordination by men does. That's why Paul found it necessary to speak to Timothy about the prophecies that went before him. Not that Paul's authority was insufficient, but that once God had spoken directly, Timothy had a higher legitimacy for his calling. Paul's words also destroy another one of the cessationist arguments. The false appeal to the Westminster's Confession statement in 1.6 that since the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary is given in Scripture, therefore we don't need prophecies anymore. Paul says the same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16-17 through 17, that Scripture is good to make men complete, and yet... He still finds it necessary to remind Timothy of the prophecies that went before him. Apparently, as far as Timothy is concerned, the completeness offered by Scripture was not threatened by the prophecies concerning him. The same principle is seen in action in Acts 1, verse 23 through 26, in drawing lots for who would fill the vacated position of Judas. There was no principle in the law that would forbid the eleven from choosing another apostle. But God's direct decision would have a higher authority than all the counsels of men. The principle of miraculous gifts confirming authority is also seen in the ministry of Jesus himself. When John the Baptist lost his faith and started doubting the validity of Jesus' ministry, Jesus reminded him of the signs accompanying his ministry and how those signs confirmed his authority. Matthew 11 verse 2 through 6 Of course, authority in the church doesn't require supernatural confirmation all the time, and indeed, this is not the meaning of my argument. There is a legitimate place for human decisions. See, for example, Acts 6, verse 1 through 6, and Titus 1, verse 5.
But for human authority and decisions to be legitimate, they need to be open to prophetic correction, guidance, and encouragement when necessary. This is obvious from the function of the prophets in the Old Testament, where even David, who could hear from God directly, had prophets who would correct him in his human decisions. In the New Testament, Paul, with all his apostolic authority and revelatory gifts, still listened to prophetic guidance from another prophet, Agabus. Acts 21, verse 10 through 11. Even if Paul listened to prophetic guidance from others, how much more or modern church sessions should be open to hear prophetic words of correction and guidance? At least one issue needs to be covered under this function of the gifts. The issue of the prophetic office. The argument of cessationism is that the prophetic gift was rigidly connected to the prophetic office in the early church, and therefore, since the office has ceased, the gift has ceased too. This, of course, goes against the teachings and the practice of the Reformers. For example, a synthesis of Calvin's commentaries on 1 Corinthians 12-14 and Ephesians 4 will show that Calvin believed the office to have ceased, but the gift to still be valid and operational. Therefore, there is no such rigid connection between gift and office. Such connection would have made most Old Testament prophets false prophets, since very few of them were ordained to the office in the institutional church at the time. It would also create a problem with the mention in Acts 21 of the four daughters of Philip who prophesied. If prophetic gift always meant church office, then cessationists must argue for ordination of women. From there, if women can take one of the offices of the fivefold ministry in Ephesians 4.11, then women can be ordained to any of the other offices as well. The best solution to this problem is that there was no such office of prophet in the early church. It has always been a recognized gift without church administrative or judicial authority. Hence the commandment for the others to judge the prophet in 1 Corinthians 14. We don't have examples of ordination of a prophet in the New Testament, and neither do we have examples of ordination of an apostle. In fact, we can say that the prophetic gift is God's way to straighten the church from above rather than from within. It is a way for God to establish or confirm or reject human authority through a word given outside the institutional framework of the church. A rejection of that function of prophecy is a humanistic endeavor of making the church a man-made institution, not a body of Jesus Christ. Let's not forget that one of the accusations against the Pharisees was that they killed the prophets, thus rejecting God's attempts at correcting Israel in her apostasy. Matthew 23, verse 29 through 39. 3. Ethics, Sanctification, Establishment the folly of cessationism's obsession with predictive prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 verses 20 through 22 is obvious also in Elijah's complaint to God in 1 Kings 19 verse 10 and 14. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Here is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament the prophet whose name is a symbol of the prophetic ministry itself, the prophet who only had the privilege of all the prophets to be taken up in the clouds, and later meet and talk to Jesus on the mountain together with Moses. If there is a prophet who knows what the prophetic gifts should be about, that would be Elijah. If there is a prophet who knows what the focus and the function of the prophetic ministry should be about, that is Elijah. And when he stands before God, Elijah is not concerned with the predictive aspect of his prophecies, but with the ethical sanctification of Israel. He has lost hope. His ministry seems to have been a failure. Why? Is it because of failed predictions? No. 
Elijah doesn't have the childish view of prophecy and the fullest obsession with predictive prophecy modern cessationists have. He is a covenant theologian. He knows that the function of the prophecy is the restoration of a people to the covenant, their obedience to the law of God, and their establishment in the faith. And indeed, of all the Old Testament prophets, there are very few that actually gave predictive prophecies. And even with those who did, a very small portion of their writings are predictive prophecies. What is the bulk of their prophecies concerned with? Ethics and Sanctification Calling Israel back to the law of God, and in fact, in support of the theonomic interpretation of the Bible, calling all the nations back to the law of God. From Moses' ministry, called prophetic in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, through David's Psalms and Solomon's Proverbs, through the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, through all the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, the concern is always this. How do we restore Israel in the covenant? How do we make the people return to the law and the testimony? Isaiah 8, verse 19 through 20. This function of prophecy is not limited to the Old Testament. The last promise in the Old Testament concerning the New Covenant states the restoration of the prophetic ministry in the following terms. Notice, Elijah is mentioned again. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. Malachi 4 verse 5 through 6. The promise is not that the prophetic ministry would be restored as clairvoyance so that cessationists can babble about Deuteronomy 18 all day long. The promise is that it would be restored so that hearts would be restored. The Old Testament truth that where there is no prophetic vision the people perish, Proverbs 29 verse 18, is taken seriously in the New Covenant. God promises He won't let His people perish in sin, and therefore He promises an abundance of prophetic visions, Joel 2 through 3, Acts 2. The new covenant starts from sanctification in the heart, Jeremiah 31 verse 33, and that sanctification in the heart is still a necessity today as it was before the last apostle died. Therefore, to claim that prophecy has ceased is to miss a very important function of prophecy described in the Bible. But do we see this function of prophecy really played out in the New Testament? First, of course, we have the example of Jesus, who did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Knowing what is in man, of course, is the first step to helping man with this sanctification. If sanctification begins in the heart, then the process of sanctification must start with a clear, thorough picture of the nature of man, and specifically of the man who is being counseled and helped with the sanctification. It is the promise of the new covenant that the law will be written in the hearts of men. There is some kind of inner change, inner transformation that needs to happen in man, in his view of God, himself, law, judgment, and the future, for man to be sanctified. Calvin starts his institutes with the claim that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves is mutually connected, and that knowledge is not rationalistic, metaphysical, nor magical, liturgical, but ethical and judicial. The right knowledge of ourselves sets us against the standard of God's law and finds us lacking, so that every person, therefore, on coming to the knowledge of himself, is not only urged to seek God, but is also led by the hand to find him. This tells us what the function was of Jesus' supernatural knowledge of what is in man, to help man be conformed to the ethical demands of the law of God in his very heart and nature. In confirmation, the very next encounter of Jesus is with Nicodemus, where the same issue is brought up. How does man attain a new, sanctified nature? The argument that such supernatural knowledge was reserved only for Jesus doesn't stand the test of Scripture. 
First, the Old Testament prophets had the gift of discerning the hearts of their listeners. See, for example, 2 Kings 5, verse 25 through 26. Second, John the Baptist had the gift of discerning hearts. Luke 3, verse 7 through 8. Third, the gift of supernatural knowledge and the gift of discerning spirits are mentioned among the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8 through 10. We also know of testimonies of gifts of discerning spirits and hearts in the lives of many of the heirs of the Reformation. Knox and Spurgeon, for example. It is clear that such discernment was given not to impress nor to entertain, but to help the listeners with their sanctification. In agreement with this, Paul tells the Roman church the purpose of the spiritual gifts. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Romans 1 verse 11 that establishment is clearly, from the context, an establishment in the faith and in sanctification, in bearing fruit. To the Corinthians, Paul gives one of the functions of speaking in tongues. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4. And what about prophecy? The function of prophecy, apparently, is to be the greatest gift, for it edifies the whole church. Verse 4. And in order for the church to be edified, Prophecy must be a supernatural gift, revealing the mysteries of the hearts, for Paul adds, But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Verse 24-25 All these, special knowledge, discerning of spirits, edification, disclosing the secrets of the heart, point to this very important ethical function of the spiritual gifts. Sanctification, conviction of sin, and changing the nature of man to be conformed to the requirements of the law of God. It shouldn't be surprising then that the modern church has failed in its attempts to produce disciples at the same scale as the early church, or as the churches of the Reformation. If individual and corporate counseling, discipleship, and training are divorced from the direct participation of the Holy Spirit, they will inevitably be built on humanistic foundation. We should expect either that man's theories and psychologies enter the church, or that counseling and discipleship be based on what Calvin called bare interpretation of scripture, that is, a depersonalized general academic presentation of the law without specific applications to the sanctification of a person or institution. A Christian counselor without the gift of knowledge or discerning spirits would be limited in his abilities to help start his listeners on the road to sanctification. And the issue of producing disciples has been returning with every generation of Christian ministries who have been unable to train their own intellectual and spiritual heirs. Human abilities can get you only so far. The rejection of the direct involvement of the Holy Spirit has its consequences. And we didn't even mention here the thoroughly biblical issue of casting out demons. Cessationists seldom mention this aspect of the practices described in the New Testament. Cessationism, as a doctrine, is not able to explain it, nor to recognize it as an issue. If the gifts have ceased, and with them the discerning of spirits, does that mean that demons have ceased too? If they haven't, what is the process of casting them out without the direct involvement of the spirit? This alone may take another article to cover, but sanctification sometimes does require casting out demons, and the Bible is very clear that sin and perversion may be the result not just of a person's sin, but of a person's direct subjection to personal spiritual forces. See the example of Mary Magdalene and other women in Luke 8 verse 2. 
How does modern counseling deal with such cases, where no sanctification is possible before spiritual deliverance is first administered? Part 3 4. Pronouncing Judgment I have appointed you a prophet to the nations, God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, verse 5, and then continued explaining to him what exactly the task of a prophet to the nations is. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Verse 10. Of course, Jeremiah wasn't given the political or military or economic power to bring those judgments upon the nations and the kingdoms. He didn't need to. A prophet is God's mouthpiece for pronouncing judgment, and that's what Jeremiah was called to do, as a prophet, pronouncing judgment on Israel and on the nations outside Israel. This function of prophecy wasn't limited to Jeremiah. Moses, as a prophet, declared judgment on Egypt, and later on the nations who opposed Israel and their journey to the Promised Land. In fact, Moses pronounced judgment against his own people, Israel, when they rebelled against God. David and Solomon, both having prophetic gift from God, pronounced judgments against nations and individuals. Solomon's greatest desire was not the economic blessings of the law, but the wisdom to judge. 1 Kings 3, verse 9. Elijah's whole career as a prophet was devoted to pronouncing judgment and sometimes even executing it himself, as on the prophets of Baal. The prophecy for the return of Elijah in Malachi 4 speaks of restoration of hearts, as we already saw, but it also ends with the pronunciation of judgment, verse 6. John the Baptist, the very fulfillment of that promise for the return of Elijah, was thrown in jail and then lost his head for pronouncing judgment against the ruler for his sin. Jonah's prophecy was pronouncing judgment, and Revelation, the ultimate prophecy in the Bible, was not simply a predictive prophecy. It was a court verdict against Israel and against the Roman Empire. The New Testament also gives us examples of prophetic judgment against individuals. The spiritual man judges all things, Paul declared, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 15. And in chapter that starts with the judgment against the foolishness of the powerful of the day, verse 8. The verdict against Ananias and Sapphira was based on the supernatural knowledge, Acts 5, verse 4. Paul's judgment against the evil spirit and the fortune-telling slave girl in Acts 16, verse 18, was based on a supernatural gift of discerning the spirits and maybe also the gifts of faith and healing, see 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Peter's knowledge of the inner motives of Simon, the magician, in Acts 8, verse 23, couldn't come from natural observations but from supernatural knowledge. And again, in the very book of prophecy, Revelation, seven churches are judged for blessing or for curse. Obviously, another purpose of the spiritual gifts, a very important function of the covenant of God, is pronouncing judgment. Authority and law mean nothing unless there is judgment, blessings or curses coming from that authority, based on that law, in the name of the one who gives the gifts. That judgment is not abstract and impersonal, based on just bare interpretation of scripture, to borrow Calvin's phrase. Prophetic judgment is concrete, personal, and based on an authoritative word from God himself. It addresses a specific situation of today, not just in abstract terms, but in specific blessings or curses. The moral situation of a person or a nation is never simple and flat. Some things are more important for the specific historical moment than others, and a bare reading of scripture doesn't always reveal which issue is more important in God's eyes. 
No matter how much the Satanists complain about new revelation, there is a need for some revelation to know what the specific issues are that need to be addressed if a nation is to escape judgment or to acquire the blessings of the covenant. As obvious as this function of the spiritual gifts is, one is left to wonder what exactly cessationists have in store to replace it with. Prophetic sanctions in history are an integral part of the covenant of God, and without sanctions in history, that covenant is not operational in history. Thus, if prophetic judgment has ceased, since prophecy has ceased, according to cessationism, cessationists are left without any basis for applying the covenant to history after 1st century AD, except in a very impersonal, abstract, watered-down way. How would a cessationist pronounce judgment on anyone or any nation if God doesn't speak directly to our time and circumstances? This lack of covenantal judgment leads first to the loss of cultural influence. John Knox was feared by the powerful of his day, and the reason for their fear was very specifically his sermons, where he pronounced prophetic judgments on kings, queens, and bishops, and even whole nations. The cultural influence of the Reformation in Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Britain was based on that ability to apply covenantal judgments to specific circumstances, an ability that requires specific supernatural revelation. See Calvin above. Is it surprising, then, that the decline of the Reformed and Presbyterian influence in the West coincide with the rise of cessationism and its hostility to supernatural word of applying scripture to present use and originally Reformed doctrine? Neither is it surprising that the very trademark of the Reformation, covenant theology, is now being abandoned by one Reformed seminary after another, one Reformed church after another. The process has become so widespread that some theologians and pastors are sounding the alarm already, though with little effect. Covenant theology makes no sense without covenant sanctions, and there are no covenant sanctions unless the Spirit teaches the Church to declare them in history. And the very essence of the Reformation, the Christianization of all of life, is then lost. Reform today has lost its meaning. It is nothing more than theologically correct humanistic selfishness that makes God subservient to man's need for salvation. Professors at Reformed seminaries are attacking the very concept of Christendom as the application of the gospel truths to all of life, limiting the gospel to only personal salvation and maybe a little moralism in the public life of a person is all that passes for reform today. This decline of reformed theology shouldn't be surprising either. Once the Holy Spirit is excluded from direct participation in the life of the church and pronouncing judgment and sanctions, what follows is creeping humanism, and the last 100 years of Presbyterianism in the U.S. have been an abundant testimony to that effect. Cessationism can offer nothing to replace this function of the spiritual gifts, pronouncing judgment, and therefore, cessationism has lost the very concept that is supported by judgment and sanctions in history, the covenant. It won't be long before we see the Shekinah glory cloud of the covenant leaving the cessationist churches and moving to those who have a biblical view of the gifts of the Spirit. The process has already started. 5. Vision, Purpose, and Strategy for the Future I received some criticism for my article of a few weeks back, Individual Purpose and the Kingdom of God. The focus of the objections was this passage. The battle for the hearts of our children will not be fought in the area of ethical boundaries nor in the area of evangelism and apologetic defense of the faith. The battle will be fought in the area of personal, individual purpose for each one of our children. It seemed to some that in this passage I had betrayed the traditional Reformed theology in favor of a more charismatic theology where the practical concerns of man's life are more important than the confessional and theological standards of the faith. 
One critic even told me that I was simply pushing some version of Rick Warren's A Purpose Driven Life. But the reality is, the Bible is an eschatological book from the very beginning. The concern with the future is much greater than the concern with the past or the present. The very institution of the family is given at the very beginning as something which breaks with the past even before there was any past. Genesis 2 verse 24 And has a promise and a vision for the future. Genesis 1 verse 28 the promise was in the center of all things God commanded. The land was the promised land, and the covenants were covenants of the promise. Ephesians 2 verse 12 The faith that moved and saved the saints in the Old Testament was a faith in the future Messiah. All the great works they did were lesser than that great vision and expectation of the future. Hebrews 11 verse 13 through 16 Biblical faith is future-oriented. Its life comes not from stagnant theories or judicial rules of apologetic principles. All these are important, for they are the support, the bones of the faith. But without a vision, a purpose, an expectation of the future, those bones are dry bones with no life in them. It is not unusual congregations or families or individuals without purpose to look like they have no life in them, or that those with optimism for the future, with a purpose and a vision for their lives to be described as lively, vivacious, vigorous. It is very often that churches focused on repeating the same procedures over and over again ad nauseum look like dead churches, for the life of expectations for the future or purpose for the future is not present. God told Ezekiel to prophesy over dry bones, Ezekiel 37, and the prophecy was to give them a promise, a vision for the future, verses 11 through 28. We already know from Calvin's words above that prophetic revelation is necessary to apply scripture to present use. But the purpose of spiritual revelation is not just applying the word to our present circumstances, but also to our future goals. How do you know what the purpose for your personal life should be? Can the Holy Spirit give each one of us specific, direct guidance? How do we know where to invest our time, efforts, talent, to achieve God's purposes for our lives? The Word of God gives us everything necessary for salvation, but does it contain the specific, individual purpose of each and every one of us? Or of our families, churches, businesses, and communities? Or are we to create our own purpose out of our own minds, instead of seeking God's guidance? Or are we to neglect the future as vision and purpose, and just limp along through life, taking care only about our theology and our ethical conformity with the law? How do we become leaders who change the course of history if we don't have a vision for the future, our future, and the future of our communities? And how can we make sure that that vision and purpose are those of the Holy Spirit and not of our autonomous minds? Both the New and the Old Testaments are full with examples of prophecy that lay a vision or a strategy before a person to follow. In fact, in some places in the Old Testament, direct word from the Lord was given not only for strategy, but for tactics too. See, for example, Joshua 6, verse 1 through 5, 2 Samuel 5, verse 17 through 25. Kings and even kings of Gentile nations outside Israel were anointed by prophets. 1 Kings 19 verse 15 through 16. All the prophets spoke judgment against Israel, but also gave the vision of the restoration of Israel. Isaiah is called today the prophet of the new covenant, and he is truly so. For the vision he gave to Israel was used by Jesus to announce the start of his ministry. Luke 4 verse 17 through 21. That vision was kept alive, not in the temple, nor with the religious leaders of Israel, but with the prophets of Israel. Luke 2, verse 21 through 38. Notice, the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, and Anna was a prophetess. 
Jesus used supernatural knowledge and power to appoint his disciples. Matthew 9, verse 9, John 1, verse 48, thus giving them a purpose for their lives. As we saw before, Paul advised Timothy to continue fighting the good fight in accordance with the prophecies that went before him, indicating that the prophecies not only legitimized Timothy's ministry, but also described the vision and strategy for that ministry. How else would Timothy fight in accordance with them? Agabus's prophecy to Paul was also lying out a vision, a strategy, and maybe even encouragement for Paul on his long journey to Rome. It certainly gave him the faith and the confidence that his ship would survive in the storm when everyone else had lost faith. Acts 27 verse 24. And that ark, prophecy, the book of Revelation was not only a book of judgment, but also a book of encouragement and vision for the future of the church in the middle of the greater shipwreck of the great tribulation of AD 63 through 70 and the persecutions against the church. A study of the mission field from the very early centuries of the church until today will show us that all successful missionaries have had some experience with direct guidance or revelation, often against all rational odds, or against common sense, or against common opinion and established wisdom. We seldom hear about missionaries who left their comfortable life back home because they naturally, from their own minds, came to the logical conclusion that they should go to the mission field. Let me change this a little. Not only missionaries... We seldom hear of any Christian leader who has changed the course of history in one way or another that has based his vision and purpose and expectations of the future on his own rational, logical thought. In all situations, it was some revelation, some supernatural motive that pushed people to sacrifice what they had and look for the greater glory of the kingdom of God. Purpose and vision are not something man gets from his rational thought. They are supernatural revelation, for changing history requires the ability to see things that are not there yet. And how would a human mind see what doesn't exist yet except by revelation? It is one of the functions of the revelatory gifts to reveal it. The inability of modern cessationism to influence history is partly due to this hostility to supernatural revelation that could start this fire in the hearts of men to change the course of history. The rejection of the gifts of the Spirit comes at a price. And that price is stagnation, and eventually, death. I've witnessed Presbyterian missions that spin their wheels for decades without producing anything of value. And why go to the mission field when we have such good examples here in the U.S.? With all the seminaries, all that right theology, all the studies of the classics of the Reformation, how great is the influence of Presbyterianism in the culture in the United States? Can we say that we have changed the course of history? The much smaller and younger charismatic movement has proven much more resilient and vigorous and much more capable to influence culture because it has had much better view of initiative and entrepreneurship. And the reason is that they have been much more open to the guidance by the Spirit of which the Bible and church history give us multiple examples. Such rejection of the guidance of the Spirit has also produced a significant dose of dualism in the Reformed churches. On one hand, since the Bible does speak about the future state of the saints after the final judgment, that part of future expectations is governed by revelation. On the other hand, the Bible doesn't give direct guidance to everyone individually or to specific families or groups or churches concerning their immediate future before the final judgment. This is left to the human mind and imagination without any direct aid from the Holy Spirit. The question is then, how does man know if his efforts here on earth are really helping expand the kingdom of God? Or are in accordance with God's purposes for his generation. Acts 13, verse 36. The cessationist answer should be, if the cessationist is consistent with his own theory, 
That man can't know God's will for his life and his generation simply because God doesn't speak to man directly today. Such revelation supposedly would compete against the revelation of Scripture, even though Scripture doesn't contain the purpose and vision for every individual person, which makes the argument quite ridiculous. Man, at best, can guess, but even in his guesses, he has no way to verify if they are correct. For even such verification would require some kind of direct revelation to be validated. God can't give direct vision and purpose, and God can't directly correct man's vision and purpose for himself. Man is on his own as far as his future on earth is concerned. From this, the step is very small to declaring all human endeavor on earth independent of God's revelation. If man is on his own in his everyday life, this side of final judgment, then man should develop his own theories for personal and social life this side of final judgment. God can't intervene in a constructive or corrective way. He just can't speak directly to man. The result is the dualism of the two-kingdom theology, a logical conclusion of cessationism. Cessationism, in other words, with its enlightenment, humanism, and hostility to the supernatural, eventually leads to dualism and death. Man has no purpose nor vision revealed to him by God except in an abstract and personal way, and he must be on a quest to produce his own purpose and vision. In the end, God's revelation becomes irrelevant not only to man's past, but to his future on earth as well. Conclusion I have been asked by cessationists, if the spiritual gifts are valid today, how come we have never seen a true prophet or true prophecy in our church? My answer has always been, besides the obvious question, how do you know your church is a true church? Based on your cessationist theory, how would you recognize if there were a true prophet or a true prophecy in your church? Could it be that there were, and you didn't recognize them, blinded by your unbiblical theology? Could it be that the Holy Spirit just didn't bother to speak directly to your church, seeing that you've adopted a theology that conveniently leaves them out? Cessationism has no answer to these questions. It is humanistic to the core. It's based on a false and ignorant application of one verse only, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, to a time that is intermediate. No verse in the Bible supports cessationism in any form. All other arguments for cessationism are either rationalistic reasoning based on an imaginary limited purpose of the gifts, as in Warfield, or sensationalist complaints about certain practices in certain modern churches. See what Benny Hinn is doing? Therefore, the gift is ceased. The claim that a modern prophecy would be a challenge to the authority of Scripture is a false claim, as Calvin points out. The issue with the modern validity of the gifts is not scriptural revelation versus direct revelation, as cessationists claim. It is God's interpretation and application versus man's interpretation and application of God's word to present use. And on this issue, cessationism is very obviously on the humanistic side of the fence. But contrary to the cessationist imaginations, the spiritual gifts have a covenantal purpose, and this covenantal purpose is clearly revealed in Scripture. 1. The gifts are given for knowledge and worship. Knowledge to apply the word to present use, and worship to let the Spirit help us in our prayers and supplications to God. 2. The gifts are given to legitimize authority wherever God decides that is necessary. This function is also expressed in confirming authority and sometimes even judging and rejecting human authority when human authority has been established against God's will or when it has become contrary to God's purposes. 3. The gifts are given for sanctification and establishment to train and lead and edify the people of God to better conform to the ethical demands of the law of God. 
They are specifically meant to reveal the secret desires of the hearts of men so that men can be effectively led to repentance and obedience. 4. The gifts are given to pronounce judgment, to declare God's positive or negative sanctions in history, to specific individuals, institutions, or groups of people. 5. The gifts are given to give vision, purpose, and lay out strategy for action so that men have their eyes set on their future in history and on the purpose of God for their individual lives and for the specific generation. These functions of the gifts don't have to be guessed or derived by rationalistic reasoning. They are clearly expressed in Scripture and abundantly supported with examples in Scripture. The attempt to deny this covenantal purpose of the gifts and to transfer it to a bare reading and human interpretation of Scripture will only lead to abstract, dry, lifeless theorizing about the covenant, but never to the direct, specific, dynamic application of the covenant of God to the specific circumstances of our day and our generation. So therefore, before any cessationist starts babbling again about the cessation of gifts, he needs to prove that the need for the above functions of the gifts have ceased. Only then will he have a foundation for his theory. The problem is, once we assume that this covenantal purpose and the functions of the gift have ceased, we won't have covenant theology anymore. Only humanistic reasoning that parades as Christianity. The conclusion then is obvious. The excesses in modern charismaticism can't be fought against by a similarly unbiblical excess in rejecting the gifts of the Spirit. These excesses only come to prove that we are in need of a systematic biblical covenantal doctrine of the gifts of the Spirit, which will restore the legitimate place in the churches today. Instead of whining about some charismatic celebrity pushing people in the Spirit, we need to do our homework, which we have abandoned for over a century. The Reformed churches need to dump the humanistic doctrine of cessationism back where it belongs, in the dustbin of history, together with its parents' dispensationalism and enlightenment. And we need to start over again, going to the Bible to build a covenantal view of the spiritual gifts, one which would allow to restore an element of our faith, practice, and obedience to God, which we have ignored and abandoned for over a century. The Gifts of the Holy Spirit This audio version of The Truly Covenantal and Reformed View of Prophecy and of the Other Gifts, Part 1, 2, and 3, by Bojadar Marinoff, has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Lucas Bell. Please visit www.christendomrestored.com to read this article and many more.